Welcome to the Data Guru Podcast. We're your hosts, Scarlett Burks and Laurel Wilhelm Volpe. We will trade off hosting duties this year to bring you a wide range of data experts discussing audience strategy, emerging trends, and practical ways to boost campaign performance. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. This is Laurel Wilhelm Volpe, and today our group of experts is here to talk about privacy legislation and the impact on both consumers and advertisers. Now, you might be thinking, I thought this was the Data Guru podcast. Why are you talking about legislation? Well, just the other day, I received an email from the IAB on the State of Data 2022, and the headline read, The looming peril isn't cookies, it's legislation. And when you look into the report, you can see that our industry has already lost about 50% of the third-party identifiers we use to power the ads we send out, despite Google postponing the deprecation of third-party cookies by another year. This loss of identifiers is due in part to actions by companies like Apple and Firefox, but also due to actions by consumers themselves as people opt out of communications and marketing. And yet... What seems poised to cause even greater upheaval is likely coming from the legislative front. So here to give us an update on what is going on and what we might be in for, we're joined by Jordan Abbott and Linda Harrison. Jordan, will you introduce yourself and then hand it over to Linda? Sure. Thanks for having me today. I'm Jordan Abbott. I'm the Chief Prophecy Officer uh, at Axiom. And I'm Linda Harrison. I'm a Senior Director at Axiom for Data Strategy. Awesome. Thank you both. So, Jordan, you have called out the need for a national privacy law here in the U.S., you know, similar to approaches we have seen in other countries around the world. Why do you think we need that? I mean, why can't we just have at it at the state level? Well, I think that's a a great question. And it's because we need uniformity. We need two things. A person's rights with respect to privacy should not depend on what state they live in. My rights or my privacy is equally important, even though I live in Arkansas, as it does to California residents or Colorado or Virginia or Connecticut or Utah, five states that have passed comprehensive privacy legislation in the last couple of years. But it is incredibly difficult for companies to navigate privacy laws. Each has a slightly different tweak to it, and it makes compliance exceedingly difficult and expensive. Therefore, in order to have predictability, you need uniformity as opposed to a patchwork of states. We think it's important, I believe it's very important, to have a national privacy law in the U.S. that provides meaningful consumer rights, things like access to know what a a company has about the, the person, deletion, If the consumer wants the personal information held by the company deleted or opt out uh, from sale, at least those rights. But we also, it has a corresponding benefit. Having a national privacy law would preserve competition and innovation. Right now, we're seeing a concentration of ad tech in a smaller and smaller group of companies. And as a result... I think that harms competition, that harms our economy, and it could have long-term impacts uh, on the United States as we compete uh, globally. So for me, I think it's very important that we have a national privacy law that has uniformity, predictability, as well as provides consumers with the same rights, regardless of where where they live in the U.S. 
It sort of reminds me of the state attorney general for do not call back in the day. That kind of dates me a little bit, but we had all those patchwork laws of like Indiana. Oh, Indiana is totally different. Here's the rule. Alaska, look out. You could go to jail. And so a national law makes sense to me as well. Plus then the movement of people, just because I live in California, what happens when somebody visits California or I'm a California resident and I'm in Oklahoma, do my rights still follow me or not? It just makes things messy. Yep, that makes absolute sense. And in fact, I know that this summer, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act was passed in committee. Jordan, first of all, did I say that correctly, is that it was passed in committee. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, you're right, uh, Laurel. The American Data Privacy and Protection Act is a real attempt to pass a national privacy law, and it passed the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, by a wide margin. I think something along the lines of 58 to two or around that kind of numbers. And it does a number of things that uh, Axiom supports. It does provide those meaningful consumer right that we discussed earlier, access, deletion, opt-out include correction too. But it has some things that concerns me and concerns our industry. In our view, it swings too far away from responsible uses of data. And it really attacks and is unfavorable and disfavors advertising. Moreover, it has a private right of action, meaning the ability for consumers to sue for violations of the act. We think potential harms that come from irresponsible use of data, you know, do not warrant large penalties or damages. Now, Axiom can support a private right of action, the ability for a consumer to sue for actual damages, actual harm. But we're concerned about laws that would include a statutory damage as a component of a national law. Similarly, the ADPPA includes a preemption, which in concept, we strongly support. We believe a national privacy law, any national privacy law, needs to have strong preemption of state laws, meaning that the state laws no longer are operative and that the national privacy law takes precedence. However, the ADPPA preemption does not go far enough. It, for example, allows the California Privacy Protection Agency to in Enforce the ADPPA under the California law, which ostensibly gives them the power to impose administrative fines and penalties. And we don't think that's the way to go because I think, you know, there'll be a rush for other states to do something similar and have those kinds of rights as well. So, you know, it's uncertain what the future of the ADPPA is, whether there'll be a vote on the House floor this session. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has expressed concerns about the ADPPA. But even if it passes the House, its future in the Senate is uncertain, whether it'll you know, receive a vote in the Senate Commerce Committee, much less make it to the Senate floor. So 
I'm not sure the, the prospects of the ADPPA are all that great in this legislative session. And then who knows what happens after the midterm elections in November. We could have a change of control in one or both houses and we could be back to square one. But we really believe that it is imperative that we get a national privacy law. Otherwise, the next year, almost every other state that is in session, their legislatures are in session. They will likely consider a California or a Virginia style law. Yeah. So Linda, in your work with advertisers and, you know, that of your team and and day-to-day requests coming in, are you sensing that regulatory concerns are influencing changes in the way different brands are going to market and how they're choosing their audiences? You know, for example, are you seeing any shifts from third-party-based audiences to more first-party or any other tools that are available to to advertisers uh, in this environment? Yeah, so sensitive data has really perked the ears of my clientele, right? That they're very concerned about marketing to consumers based on race. There's great reasons to do marketing based on race. Maybe you're trying to increase your Hispanic or it's a product or service for the African-American community. So they want to reach the right people for the right things. And now they're really worried about doing that in an appropriate way based on what state people live in. So we're working through that with them and talking about the different options and how it's going to change their world. Because there are some modeled attributes and we're looking for consent. Do you want to talk about that? Jordan, the consent issue? You raise a very difficult problem that we're trying to address, trying to reach underserved markets, trying to increase diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. Companies want to market to these underrepresented groups. In Virginia, Colorado, and Connecticut, beginning in 2023, companies are going to have to have opt-in affirmative consent in order to process sensitive personal information. You mentioned race, but there are other things that those definitions as well, things like ethnicity, like a religious affiliation, mental and physical health conditions, the things, uh, other things that we all have traditionally considered sensitive personal information, like driver's license information, social security numbers and stuff like that. But in order to process things like race, ethnicity and religious affiliation, as you said, Linda, we're going to have to have opt-in consent for modeled or inferred data. That's going to be nearly impossible to get opt-in consent. A company like Axiom does not have a direct relationship with the residents of those states. And even if we could afford to send direct mail requesting consent to those citizens in those states, the likelihood of you know consumers responding back affirmatively saying, I opt in and allow you to create modeled elements about me would probably be fairly low. You think, uh, Linda might even say it's zero. <laughs> but uh, so what we're going to have to do, I believe, is filter out 
the data elements, the modeled elements that create rise to the level of sensitive personal information in those states. Now, we don't have to do that, filter that out for all states, only those states that are currently affected, Virginia, Colorado, and Connecticut at the moment. But it is going to have an impact and perhaps a significant impact on our clients that are really trying to, you know, small businesses trying to reach niche customer base, as you mentioned, uh, increase Hispanics, uh, marketing Hispanic meal products or other holiday type events. So we're, it's going to be really interesting to see how it pans out in uh, beginning in 2023. What about using census level data? Because it has percent by race, by ethnicity, things like that. Would that be permissioned in those states or is that still going to be problematic since it's from the government? Assuming it's a public record, we should be okay. But there's a lot of uncertainty in this area at the moment. And some companies are going to strongly conservative approach and some, you know, and say, hey, I don't even uh, want aggregated uh, census level information. But I actually, at the moment, I believe that sort of information should be okay for a host of reasons. Number one, it's public record information is usually and almost always exempt. And number two, it's aggregated. So it's not, it doesn't speak to Jordan or Linda to their specific individual race or ethnicity. Some platforms today don't allow race or ethnicity marketing anyway. So I think some of those restrictions will get tighter as well. And some won't allow gender Mm -hmm. or anything about children to be marketed to. So we're already working through a patchwork quilt based on platform requirements. So this is just going to add that next level of joy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, t- you talk about kids data. Children's Online Privacy Protection Act or, or COPPA already covers data about children under 13. But Congress is considering extending that to what they call COPPA 2.0, which would raise the age to roughly 17. And there are a lot of things that could have a negative impact on that. What if universities and colleges that are trying to market to rising seniors, for example, uh, come to the University of Arkansas or Rhodes College in Memphis, where I went to school, they may have trouble marketing to those things. Uh, also, the government might have trouble marketing uh, to, you know, recruiting for the military. I don't know. Those are just two things that popped in my mind on those kinds of uh, if they are are raising the right age that would make advertising off limits to kids under 17. So Today, Axiom doesn't carry information on people under the age of 18. Right. We always market to the parents of the children. But even in some of those cases, Google, for example, won't allow us to use anything about children. Correct. In their campaigns. So, Linda, you've already mentioned a variety of either options that we are using to help advertisers or the need for a patchwork approach. Are there any things that that you are 
adopting or recommending to advertisers. I kind of, I'm trying to think of a better way to put this, but I can't right now. It's probably because it's early in the morning, but kind of as a fail safe, like so what are some of those, some of those tools in, you know, an advertiser's toolkit right now that tend to help them reach their business goals while at the same time being respectful of this, you know, very dynamic landscape that we're seeing? Well, there's two things. One, reach out to Data Guru. I know that sounds crazy and I'm self-promoting, but our team really keeps abreast of what's going on, what's available, what's working in the marketplace. And the second one is you might think through using segmentation systems again. You know, we always want to market to the lowest denominator we can, right? So that you reach the right people for the right things. And birds of a feather don't always flock together, but segmentation systems are now at the household or individual level. So you can reach the right people about the right things because my neighbors aren't just like me. I'm sure your neighbors aren't either. We all think we're unique, but people that are in my stage of life do tend to buy the same things and people of a more senior generation. I'm not buying diapers. I'm not buying adult diapers, thankfully. Right? (laughs) But there's other products that I am buying that people my age are also purchasing. I don't know how to follow that up, Laurel. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my story. When my dad was ill and in a nursing home, I had to buy him adult diapers. Every time I would purchase those, inevitably there would be a really cute guy behind me in line. And I would, I, it would just burst out of my mouth. These aren't for me. <laughs> sure. But, they cared. <laughs> but that's how I roll. If you see me in a store and I'm apologetic on what's on the belt, I'm going to mention it. I agree in terms of, you know, my neighbors and I are not alike. And sadly, you know, I don't know my neighbors as well as I feel like I ought to. I feel like I'm a horrible neighbor, but also feel like they hate me because my dog barks all the time, just as a side story. And so, so, so I do uh, send them unsolicited pizza gift cards uh, frequently as an apology. Then they probably like you more than you think. You know, and and but if it makes both of you feel any better, one time I was in, you know, the grocery store that's just around the corner from my house and there was a man standing next to me in the meat department and he looked so familiar and he kind of smiled and said hello and I finally just said I'm sorry you're so familiar but I cannot remember your name and he looked at me and said I'm your neighbor <laughs> so <laughs> and, and moving on sorry now we took a big detour <laughs> oh gosh okay so you know I think it just it feels like such a time of upheaval and uncertainty on so many fronts for our industry. But as you have both pointed out, all is not lost. We do have experts that are following what's happening. We've got strategies to help advertisers. But if you could both, you know, what would be your top recommendation or top takeaway just with the way things stand and the way we see them going right now? And and at the end of this conversation, what, what would be your top takeaway for advertisers right now who want to reach the right people but still do? 
do it in a respectful way. That doesn't necessarily mean that just because you live in one state or another, one person gets special treatment and somebody else just gets, you know, the leftovers. So, you know, keeping that in mind, which I know is never something we would recommend. What are we going to leave folks with? Be kind, rewind. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) So again, that dates me a little bit, but go back to the basics. Don't get ahead of your skis. Do the research Still try and reach the right people for the right things. Don't just do blanket, untargeted or unsegmented solicitations. You want to still find and get the return on investment that you're looking for. So seek advice, be kind, rewind. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. I like that, Linda. I can't think of anything witty like you always do. But for me, it's about building trust. Talk about privacy by design and you know security by design a lot, but it should, we should move beyond those two things to ethics by design. Certainly, you've got to comply with the law, but that's the bare minimum. You should strive to go beyond that and do the right thing. Treat people like you would want to be treated, I guess, if I'm going to use a cliche. Do the things that build trust to remove friction in the consumer relationship. Sometimes, if not all the time, deciding to do the right thing is not easy. We all have a choice and our choices are, our values are reflected in the choices we make. And doing the right thing can be hard, it can be inconvenient, and it can be expensive. Uh, But doing those things will put you in a a better place, whatever the law ends up being, you know, because consumers that don't trust the brand will leave, you know, and start doing business with others. And that's assuming that the advertiser is around long enough that the regulators don't uh, come knocking on their door with some sort of enforcement action. So for me, it is ethical data use, being fair, being transparent, being treating people like you would want to be treated. And of course, following the law. I love it. Yeah. Can't do better than that. Just do the right thing. And, you know, we always try to wrap up our podcast with a fun question. And, you know, depending on when folks are listening to this, for us, it would be uh, if we were all going to school, it would be early in the school year and we would be getting settled into our classes and knowing our, our classmates. So my question to you both is who was your favorite teacher in school? It could be at any point, you know, all the way as much schooling as we've all had. Who was it and why? Well, I had a number of favorite teachers. Uh, Mr. Underwood, who taught high school Spanish, you know, his sarcasm was still to this day one of my favorites, and I model myself to him. Another one was my fourth grade teacher, Miss Mixon, who incidentally ran over me when I was in second grade. You know, no one believes me, but the crossing guard at the school said, you can make it if you run real fast. And so I ran out into the street and Miss Mixon ran over me and I kind of rolled off of the hood and windshield. I loved her. Uh, We did a lot of fun things. But I have to say my favorite uh, teacher was my eighth grade science teacher, Mr. Woods, who instilled in me a love 
and passion for science that I have to this day, including, I mean, especially space. We had a, <laughs> I was telling Linda and Laurel last night, they're, they're going to have to listen to this story again. I played Dungeons and Dragons in high school uh, because I was not popular, but I was in a rocket, a model rocket club in the eighth and ninth grade. And, and he helped us build model rockets and launch them. And, uh, Oh, God, I have stories to tell about how bad my rockets were. They would launch and then just uh, come right at us and then stick into the ground <laughs> until the parachute popped out. But I love Mr. Woods. He was uh, one of my favorites. I don't know that I have a favorite teacher, but I have a favorite rocket story. So I have an older brother, Robert, and I wanted to impress him as a young girl, who knows why. And we had a Hot Wheels set that had a track with like a loop-de-loop, -loop, right? And it was during the space age. So he would have me catch grasshoppers and we would rubber band them to the Matchbox cars with a bottle rocket. And we would <laughs> send them through the loop-de-loops and shoot them off into space. Oh, my God. Is that how Je Jeffrey Dahmer and uh, John Wayne Gacy and stuff like that started off uh, their uh, harming animals? So they I, I, don't know that, I don't know that insects count, but <laughs> they didn't they didn't really survive their journeys. That's all I can say. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. I don't know how to follow either one of those stories. Like Jordan, I had a, several really awesome teachers, but you mentioned Spanish. And so instead of a favorite teacher story, I will share that I had uh, high school Spanish in what was called the zero hour. So if you were enough of a nerd that you wanted to take so many classes that you couldn't get everything in, in these seven periods allowed during the day, you could take an extra class in zero hour, you know, before school. And I did that, and my Spanish class was supposed to start at like 7.15, 7.30, something really early in the morning. And I had just started driving, and I could not get there on time to save my life. And my Spanish teacher, whose name I cannot remember for the life of me, finally told me, if you are going to be late one more time, don't come. And so... One morning, I'm getting up to late. I have my license all of two weeks, the, you know, sophomore in high school. And I realize, oh, I'm going to be late. You know what? I'm not going to go. She told me not to go. So I turned the wrong way out of my parents' driveway. And, in, and so I'm just going for a joyride because my Spanish teacher told me not to go to school if I was going to be late. So as I'm driving along, there's a, you know, there was a fly in the car. And this was before power windows. So I'm like trying to get the fly out because it's really bothering me. So I'm over there like rolling down the window. And as I'm doing this, I didn't realize I was veering into the other lane. And the long story short is I had not really a head-on collision with another car, but pretty darn close. Like the corners nicked each other. But I was in a humongous, big brown station wagon with fake wood paneling on the side because my parents put me in a tank. The country squire. <laughs> I was in a country squire. And the other car flipped like 
a cricket on a rocket. And uh, but thankfully, we all walked away from it. The other car was totaled. The country squire didn't have a scratch. It was perfect. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so that was how, when my own children were learning how to drive and they wanted a cool car, and I was like, absolutely not. You're getting this humongous, beat-up, heavy thing. And if it survives high school, we're just going to say, thank you. And, uh, and they were like, Mom. And I'm like, no, I know what happens when you haven't been driving very long. So it served me well later in life. <laughs> I have a story for another time. Laura. <laughs> awesome. It's in my it's one of the chapters in my autobiography. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. Well, thank you both so very much for making time to to talk about fun stories from childhood, but also from, you know, what's going on and uh, with this regulatory landscape, how we can help advertisers and brands still, you know, get to market with the right message to the right people. And I cannot wait to hear the next chapter in the book for both of you. Thank you. Thank you.